Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is legendary paranormal investigator and author Lionel Fanthorpe. Lionel has had a prolific writing career dating back to 1952, which has seen him pen hundreds of books. Not only has he written science fiction stories, but together with his wife Patricia, also non-fiction books on an array of subjects, most notably the paranormal, unexplained mysteries of the world, poetry and religion. He has travelled the world in search of the unexplained, endeavouring to unravel such mysteries as the Oak Island Money Pit and the Creeping Coffins of Barbados. He has presented a number of television series, perhaps the best known being the cult Channel 4 show Fortean TV. During this time in his career, he was also a practising Anglican priest, which added a novel element to his televisual exploration of the unknown. Currently, he is the president of the Association for the Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena. As well as being a major contributor to paranormal research, he is a former journalist, teacher, head teacher, army rock climbing instructor, and also a World Judo Association Black Belt Fifth Dan. I begin the interview by talking with Lionel about his early experiences of the paranormal and how his interest in that first developed. From there, we discuss his writing career, his time as a journalist, what prompted him to become a priest, and how all of these things have in some manner influenced the way he investigated and contemplated the unusual phenomena he has encountered. I have very fond memories of 14 TV. Lionel's enthusiasm in the show and others played a big part in encouraging my interest in the paranormal. So it was a real treat to interview him for the podcast. Enjoy. Lionel, welcome to the podcast. I'm very honoured to be invited and it's great to be with you. You've had an incredibly varied career and a long interest in the paranormal. What was the first mystery that you remember being intrigued by? Well, it's a strange thing. It's not a, nothing very profound, but uh, I was born in 1935 and uh, my grandmother on the maternal side had come to live with us in the family home and uh, we had some little pet dogs and I was still a very small boy, maybe four or five years old, perhaps even a fraction younger. And 
uh, one of the dogs that we all loved had passed away with old age because mum and grandma kept um, very kind and gentle care of them and uh, loved them a lot and looked after them accordingly. And uh, when this uh, little terrier he was passed away, he'd reached a good age and had been very well looked after. And I was, you know how it is when you're a very young child, you're not really aware of what happens when a, a much loved pet dies and where it's gone. The ideas of life and death um, are not really clear in the mind of a young child. And uh, I came out of our back door into the back garden and there he was. Now, I hadn't seen him for three or four days. That is, he'd been dead for three or four days. But he was romping happily, looking fit and healthy as he had not looked before we lost him. And he was playing with the other dogs who were aware of him quite clearly. And I can't remember whether when I stretched out my hand to pat him and stroke him, whether I felt anything, but I reached out for him and he responded to me. He knew that I was reaching out to pet him, even though I, as I remember, didn't feel anything in the hand that I could see was touching him. And uh, I told my parents and grandmother about it afterwards or over breakfast and they were very surprised but it encouraged them to think that pets that we love do not just vanish into the great unknown when their lives end but they seem to have an immortality as we believe human beings have so that was the first mystery of my very young life and this uh, little dog who we call Prince, who came and went. Wow. So after that, how did your interest in the paranormal develop? Was that a seed of, of that happening for you? I think it probably was. Now, uh, mother and grandmother were both deeply religious, um, but they were what I would call simplistically fundamentalist religion, not one of the, uh, shall we say, more progressive churches. Um, it was a, a sincere, but without meaning it in least in the wrong sense, uh, a sincere but simple faith, a direct faith. Now, my real interest in mysteries as I was growing up, I went to a school called Hammond's Grammar School and uh, in Swatham in Norfolk and that has a very interesting mystery attached to it so if I could just run through that for you first Rick and then I'll talk to you about how I had an interest in mysteries based in that school. Um, there was in the little market town of Swatham a peddler by the name of John Chapman and he is the subject of the town sign in Swatham. And the guy who made that town sign, uh, I knew personally because his name was Harry Carter and he had been the craft teacher at Hammond's Grammar School 
when I was there as a small boy. And, uh, well, as a youngster, 10 or 11. And Harry had carved this statue of John Chapman. And the story was very well known in Swaffham. And the, the good things that the Chapmans had done with their money was rightly remembered and remembered with much gratitude. What had happened was that John um, had a very strange dream, which told him that if he went to London Bridge and stood on London Bridge, he would hear good news that would make him both rich and famous. And off he went, and it took him, I think, a good three days. It was 100 miles. It took him a good three days. And they had his faithful little dog with him, and they padded along together, and they got to London Bridge, and they stood on London Bridge for a couple of hours. And in those days, uh, there were houses on the bridge and people living in them, of course. And one of them was rather suspicious that John, who had been standing looking round at the houses, was a burglar who was looking to see when the house was empty so that he could break into it. And this guy came down and challenged him. And John said, no, no, I, I've got no criminal intention at all. And he explained that he had had this weird dream that if he went to London and stood on London Bridge, he would hear news that would make him rich and famous. And the man he was talking to burst out laughing and said, if I was as big a fool as you seem to be, I would have gone to a village called Swaffham or a small town called Swaffham, where in my dream, I saw a peddler digging in his back garden and unearthing a jar, Roman jar, full of gold coins. He said, but it's only a silly dream. I, I wouldn't think of walking to Swaffham in order to look, tell, find the peddler and tell him. Well, John diverted the conversation and at the earliest opportunity made his way back home to Swaffham and got there in the dark and called to his wife, bring the lantern and my spade, my love. And uh, she being a very loyal partner, not knowing what on earth he was up to, brings the spade and holds the lantern for him. He digs in a piece of ground near the back door of their cottage. Lo and behold, about two feet down, he encounters a Roman vase. And it is full of gold coins. Well, they hide these all away carefully in their house. And because they've been poor themselves, they want to do good for the poor and help those in need. And they're also puzzled by some writing on the jar in Latin, which they can't read. And they stood it in the window of their cottage because it was known in Swaltham that students from Cambridge who were on vacation would often come and stay in Swaltham to have a little holiday and a break from their studies. And sure enough, young academic knocks on their front door and says, could you tell me where you found that jar? And John tells a fib, it's always miles from here, is it? I'm a peddler, I, 
I, I just found it in a, in a ditch a long way away. Oh, that's a pity, said the young student, because it says on it in Latin, under me lies a greater. Well, the minute he'd gone, John and his wife got the spade again, dug down another foot or so, and lo and behold, a jar twice, three times the size of the one they'd already found, also packed with gold coins. And one of the most interesting things to do to follow this story in the Swarthen, to look in the church where in the, either the 15th or 16th century when this adventure happened, that there is a, a great carving and a plate inscribed saying that the church is very grateful to John Chapman who gave them a great deal of money because one of the walls was collapsing and they were able to restore the church with John's gift. And for the rest of their lives, the Chapmans were known to help the poor and the needy. Now, that's the mystery story that goes with Swaffham Grammar School. And I said, and one of my teachers was Harry Carter, who made the town sign of John and his little dog going off on his peddling routines. Now, when I got to, to school, and this is where my love of mysteries really began. I did not like difficult subjects such as uh, algebra, trigonometry, and uh, difficult language lessons. And I would go and hide in the library. Now, there was a master on duty in the library, but if you were a cunning little so-and-so, as I was, you got between two of the tall shelves so that the master on duty sitting on the master's end of the library and marking books or whatever teachers had to do preparing lessons could not see me and while i was down there waiting till the trigonometry or the latin or whatever i was dodging had finished there were books by on the shelf i was lying beside H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, and the other great horror and mystery writers of the time. And I would pull one down off the shelf, and as I crouched behind the shelf, out of the way of the teacher's eyes, I would read an H.G. Wells like Tales of the Unexpected, Tales of Mystery. And so, I then began thinking, what if some of these fictional stories have truth behind them? Or are there true facts in this very mysterious universe which inspired these great writers to do these stories? And that was how my early interest in mystery began. Wow, yeah, I mean, that story about John Chapman is, is fascinating, isn't it? I, I, can't, I can't imagine anybody not being intrigued by what was going on there. No, I, I was. I was fascinated by it. And I, I would love to know um, what, who had buried it, what he found. And the thing that I like most about this story is that 
the goodness and the generosity of the Chapmans and how he became not only to be remembered as the peddler, but as a great benefactor, and that there were people who undoubtedly lived through cruel poverty because of the way that John and his wife shared their Roman gold. Yeah, and it's nice for a change that someone was directed to dig something up in under mysterious circumstances, and it didn't end badly. Normally, it's the opposite. <laughs> There's awful things if they find something which destroys them. But it's um, no, as you say, it, it's good when good things happen. And I think there is a sense if we analyse the society in which we live. There is a very real sense in which goodness um, acts like a match to the gas fire or lighting the fire on which you boil the kettle. Um, That goodness spreads like heat spreads and goodness prompts other goodness and kindness and generosity. And it's it's good to think of what... uh, John Chapman did. Absolutely. You're a prolific writer yourself and have written over 200 books, I think. Um, I, know that the, I know that the books that you uh, wrote for a publisher called Badger Books uh, have a cult reputation. Uh, how did your writing career begin? Well, uh, in 1952, I was concerned. I was 17. And I think as many of us do when we're teenagers, we begin with our limited knowledge of the universe and our limited knowledge of theology and philosophy. We begin to think about what it's all about and what's in the universe and why does it behave as it does and what are these things that we discover from year to year. And so um, what I tried to bring into this first story that I wrote at the age of 70 was the idea of whether there is a God or not. And just in very brief outline, the story, which was called Worlds Without End, had the solar system and its inhabited planets organized by a group of um, atheistic super scientists uh, called the Carads, K-A-R-A-D-S. And these Carads wanted to be able to prove that there was a boundary to the universe or that there was no boundary. Their argument was, in the theological and philosophical sense, that if there was no boundary, then the universe was just a natural phenomenon and there didn't need to be a creator god. On the other hand, if there was a boundary, then a creator god had decided to make the universe of a certain size and shape and limited dimensions. And so it was important for them to send a space pilot out in a hypervidic ship to go as far as he could and to see if there was a boundary. Now, the hero, who was called Ajax Meloche, um, 
was sent out. Now, he was a deeply religious man. And although he needed his professional income as a space pilot, he did not want to find a limitless universe. On the other hand, if he hit the boundary using a hypervedic craft, then it would undoubtedly kill him. So he's got this awful mixture of, I don't want there, I want there to be a boundary to prove the existence of God. On the other hand, I don't want there to be a boundary because the speed I'm flying, it'll kill me. And anyway, the ending of the story, he's traveled hundreds of millions of light years and his instruments tell him that he is approaching a boundary and he's approaching it so fast that he can't stop in time he'll be killed and then there is a great voice in the heavens around him and a gigantic hand carefully and gently picks up his spaceship and the voice says go back and tell the carrots that there is a boundary and that he who made it wants to preserve your life because he loves the people he has made. And so he goes back and tells the Karads and there's a tremendous revolution and the uh, religious thinkers gain a place in society. And that was my um, first story um, which set out to try to reveal my interest in the philosophy and theology uh, of what lies behind the universe. And of course, the other thing that uh, I was into uh, was a journalist. I was very fortunate to land a job as a journalist while I was still in my teens. And what had happened I lived a family home, and I was still living at home with the family, was in Deerham in Norfolk, which was only 12 miles from Swaffham, where I went to the grammar school. And there was um, an advertisement in the local paper to say that Sir Thomas Cook, who owned this paper, which was called the Norfolk Chronicle, and was a rival to the big Eastern Daily Press group who are still functioning, uh, that Sir Thomas Cook, who was uh, Cook's travel agency, and was also um, a prospective MP. And he ran and subsidised this Norfolk Chronicle newspaper in order that there would be plenty of news about him and all the good and positive things he did, which he hoped would... Um, draw a few more votes in his direction. Anyway, the um, the boy in charge or the young man in charge of the Cromer office um, had, uh, by virtue of his professional skill, got promoted to a, a position with a big national paper, big national daily, and there was a vacancy in the Cromer office. And I was very, very fortunate. I was one of the youngest candidates, but I was extremely fortunate in landing the job. And I went over to take charge of the Cromer office, and that included the area all around Cromer and Sheringham. And 
what you had to do if you were a, a reporter on a local paper in Norfolk in those days was to try to find material that you could turn into an interesting article as well as the stuff that you used for the news items. So um, the rescue of a fisherman whose boat had capsized, clearly a news item and would go in as such, but um, a local householder who swore that he had seen the ghost of, uh, should we say, a, a long dead fisherman who was uh, in transparent form dragging his nets across the harbour at Cromer um, and that would trigger off an article on what ghosts were, if ghosts existed and why did we see them etc etc and so my search for real in inverted commas ghost stories factual reportings from honest people who said they'd seen something paranormal, um, reinforced and bolstered my interest in the paranormal when I was a journalist, that uh, as well as looking for news items, I was looking for elements of the paranormal that had woven themselves into the social history of Cromer and Sheringham. Yeah, I, I have in my notes actually to ask you about you know, your time as a journalist. I'm guessing the answer is yes, but did having that career help you become a paranormal investigator? Did it teach you the, the skills that you felt you feel are necessary to do that successfully? Yes, now that, that is a question I should really like to work on the answer for you. Um, when you are a journalist and doing your best to be a faithful and honest journalist and to give your readers what you sincerely believe to be the truth, to be good and rational stories, accurate, uh, I think that's a moral obligation. And so I would say that being a journalist influenced me to try my hardest to keep, whether it was a news item or uh, whether it was an investigation into a paranormal uh, phenomenon, which two or three honest witnesses claimed they'd seen. And um, so what my journalism taught me, because I was trying my best to be objective and factual and, and above all honest for my readers um, that I developed this important pointing among my investigations to facts as far as I could ascertain that they were genuine facts that they were real my journalism endowed me with a quest for truth, quest for reality. I came across other uh, journals, you know, some of the um, some of the dailies occasionally printed the most ridiculous nonsense. And uh, I thought, well, I've only got 
a very small Norfolk paper to work for. But if we can't equal their circulation, at least we will exceed their search for the truth. And that was what I would say my journalism did for me and for my philosophy um, about the paranormal, that because I wanted to find out the truth about factual items, like a fisherman's boat being wrecked or um, a house fire or um, a train colliding with another train in Cromer Station, because I wanted to get the facts right in actual events, and I also wanted to get the facts right if I was talking to, if I was interviewing someone who believed that he or she had seen a ghost or had experienced some other paranormal phenomenon. Right, and so from your time on the Norfolk Chronicle, is there a a favourite example of where you've investigated something paranormal? Well, one of the things that um, I found intriguing, although it was a long way from Norfolk, um, it concerned a young man who'd actually, because I was beginning to um, beginning to acquire a reputation as um, an investigator. Uh, partly because of things that had appeared in my books and things that had appeared um, in the newspaper that I was responsible for. There was a young man from uh, all the way down to Bristol uh, who got in touch with me. And he was an usher in the Bristol Odeon Cinema. And he had given up his job a job that he had very greatly enjoyed and didn't want to give up because he said there was a corridor in the Odeon where members of the audience could come in and out of the theatre and he said he just could not bear to go along it. There was, he said, and it's difficult to find suitable words, he said that there was some sort of what he called an evil or paranormal presence in that particular part of the Odeon, uh, in the seating area, which he found hostile and frightening. And the young man was hypersensitive to things of that kind. And he was, oh, how shall we put it? He was looking for help. He'd given up a job that he had otherwise greatly enjoyed and came searching for help. And because of the early reputation that I had then begun to establish as an investigator, he had found me and come to interrogate me, ask for my help. And I investigated and I found that there had been a murder in that cinema a long time ago. And I had a friend who was a very sensitive medium and she came with me 
And we went, and with the warm support of the cinema manager, who wanted, if it was humanly possible, to get this young man back on the staff, he was very happy to help us and to say, yes, come and investigate, do what you like. And he had got, because there must have been some records uh, in the, the cinema, in the cinema chain, about this awful murder that had happened in the 40s, late 40s, at uh, pretty well the end of the Second World War. And the manager in those days had been rather a naughty boy because a number of attractive young wives in Bristol at the time had husbands who were away fighting in the war. And he tried to take advantage of some of these lonely ladies. And as the war ended and the husbands came home, one of them found out, no doubt she confessed and said how sorry she was, that she had been um, accompanied, shall we say, for want of a polite word, by the cinema manager and that they had done things they shouldn't. And the outraged husband forgave her, realising how lonely she'd been. But as an experienced soldier, somehow found some weapons. He went to the cinema, walked along that corridor, went into the manager's office, and before the bloke could get up from his desk, the enraged ex-army man shot him dead. He left the premises and was never captured. He committed a perfectly unsolved murder. And one of the theories that uh, I'm sure you will have come across and many of our listeners will have come across is that where deeds of savage violence, where there is hatred, desire for revenge in the atmosphere, this seems to enable psychic phenomena to take place. And it seems that whatever psychic phenomena were in the cinema that were frightening the young man who'd come to see me had been the result of this unsolved murder mystery. Never was solved, it's still unsolved. And I went with the young man to the Bristolodian and um, I took with me some holy water and some prayers of exorcism and my spiritualist medium friend who was so sensitive and knew these things very well and we went to the corridor with the manager's encouragement and the young man who had been frightened of it was still with us and there was a very odd feeling in that corridor we felt it getting worse and my medium friend said, there is something very negative and evil 
in this area. And the boy that we were trying to help, the young man we were trying to help, slumped to the ground, then wriggled up with his back against the row of seats and said, they're all over me, they're hurting me. And my medium, I said he was very talented and was able to see and hear a lot of psychic phenomena, said, if I could describe them, they look like piranha fish. They are the psychic version, evil psychic entities, which would be the equivalent of piranha fish. And they are all over this boy, this young man. So I sprinkled more holy water over him, read the prayer of exorcism, and he stood up and said, Father, it's gone. Now, I wasn't a priest in those days, but uh, I was thinking of, uh, he, he just told me they'd gone. I get so used to thinking, well, well I've done other exorcisms like <laughs> as a priest that people would address me as father. No, he, he just said, Lionel, they've gone. And my psychic friend, my medium friend, who was as it's so sensitive to what was there, said, yes, he's right. He's safe now. The holy water and the prayer of exorcism have driven them away. And he was able to resume his job. The cinema manager was very pleased. And uh, I was very pleased to think that I'd helped the young man. That's an amazing description of what was happening, the evil presence of I'm not sure I've ever heard anything quite like that. I mean, I mean, with that in mind, do you think that what was happening was that that original act of violence allowed something to sort of come through? Yeah, I, I think the way that you've put that, Rick, is, is very good and very clear. Um, is it that acts of cruelty, acts of vicious violence admit they i like the way you phrase it it gave me immediate picture that they create doorways between the psychic realm and our normal three-dimensional earthly world and i think that the way you expressed it is a very helpful one i think when an evil deed or a series of evil deeds takes place then it does as it were open the door it weakens the wall between our good solid three-dimensional world and whatever the psychic world may contain which is far from good mm. you mentioned earlier there about this happening before you were a priest and Perhaps people, one of the things they best know about you is that part of your career, that vocation. How did that come about? What what drew you to becoming a priest? Well, if I look back at my own religious life and my religious thoughts, um, it goes back to my, my mother and her mother, my maternal grandmother, were in a, a simple but sincere way 
um, were themselves deeply religious. Uh, they believed in a spiritual world. They believed in heaven and hell. And uh, they also thought that there were probably intermediate places into which ghosts could go before reaching their final destination and that those ghosts might occasionally uh, be visible on earth or be audible on earth. And what I thought myself about this was based to a, a great extent, you know, how your family influence you when you're young. And uh, that was where it all, as it were, started. And I then began developing um, the idea that there were, as it were, these three levels, that there was somewhere at the bottom of the stack to which evil, uh, very, very severe evil, would go immediately, that there was also... Um, an intermediate zone in which perhaps after death all of us go before we find our way either higher up or lower down. And there's also, I felt, uh, the possibility. Let me just use a parallel there and say, if, if we think about our normal senses of physical perception um, we have a sense of taste that tells us we need a little more tomato ketchup on our chips and um, we have a sense of sight a sense of hearing um, a sense of being able to enjoy perfume and to be driven away by a revolting stench so that we have a sense of smell a sense of touch a sense of taste and our sight and hearing now, I think that the human mind, perhaps the human spirit, rather than the physical brain, is able to detect to various degrees. You'll find someone who is a master chef, for example, who has taste buds which enable him or her to cook the most delicious meals which we can all enjoy. And then at the other end, you will find a bloke who, and I think I'm in this category, <laughs> uh, I'll work till I get hungry, and then my lovely little wife can prepare the most delicious food, uh, but I will eat it without savouring it as much as it deserves. And then uh, I think, so just as the taste of a brilliant professional chef is very different from the sense of taste of a guy like me who rushes around and eats with one hand while writing with the other. And it is so with hearing, and it is so with our sense of smell, and again with vision very much so, that uh, you have to put your glasses on to read small print or you have to use a telescope to see what's happening three miles away on the mountaintop. And our spiritual senses differ in the same way as our physical ones, our sight, hearing, and our sense of smell. So that you will find some 
mediums and some psychic people who have got highly developed psychic sense in the way that a brilliant professional chef has a wonderful sense of taste. Now, I think this is why paranormal phenomena, which are in the universe close to us, that had a very good friend, uh, she's now passed into the next world, uh, her name uh, was Bremner, and Bremner was one of the most sensitive and brilliantly intelligent and perceptive mediums that I've ever met in the course of my long years of research. And on the other hand, at the other extent, there you'll find somebody who has no sense of the paranormal and uh, they could spend the night sleeping inside a crypt with corpses all around them and not feel any different from if they were sitting in a nightclub having a drink and watching the dancers. The the um, the difference is there. The point I'm sort of trying to express is that psychic ability is like any of the other physical senses, except that it can't be judged and adjudicated in the same way that your vision or your hearing or your sense of taste and smell. It's something that you either have to a powerful extent. Now, as in my friend Bremner, uh, full name was Agostini, and Bremner was brilliantly psychically sensitive, whereas I more or less have to follow someone who's asked me for help to the place where they are feeling disturbed or frightened before, now that I'm a priest, I can do my best to come to their rescue and uh, deal with whatever evil or unpleasant psychic force is threatening them. Right. And so that's why you decided to become a priest, to help people in that way. Sorry, in that way. <laughs> Yes, I, I could also say that um, from my early philosophy and theology and thinking about, you know, as I was telling you in the story about is there a God in the universe, is the universe limited? I would say that I worked through my theories of theology and philosophy and came to the conclusion that there is a God that he is totally benign and that wants all of us to do as much good as we can to keep his universe in the best form it can be kept. And I felt that I wanted to work on the side of good in a universe in which there was all too much evil and that the side of good needed a few more warriors. I I see myself psychologically uh, almost as if I'm a reincarnated Templar. I'm a warrior priest <laughs> with my, as you know, with my interest in martial arts and so on. I, uh, if the occasion 
ever arises. And I, uh, I don't want to go off on a, onto a track that might sound boastful, but if I, uh, if I see something that's, um, well, I'll give you one quick example. There was a, a situation. I was just walking down the street, coming back from cinema. I think I saw um, rather large brute with a. About a terrified girl that he got was pushing against the wall and she was crying for help. So I went across and uh, tapped him on the shoulder and said, what are you doing to this young lady? And he was about six inches taller than me. And he obviously thought that uh, I was a pushover and he didn't realise that he was up against a uh, black belt fifth dan. Uh, <laughs> you can imagine what happened to him. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and the the young lady was very grateful when her, but I said I don't want to, uh, I don't want to go off into too many anecdotes of that kind. <laughs> I feel there's a danger, of, you know, when when you have got um, some martial arts ability and you're not afraid to get stuck in if you need it. I said the warrior priest style suits me, and uh, uh, I said I I don't want to go into too many of those episodes because. It, uh, I'd be very tempted to boast. <laughs> I can appreciate why that would be the case. I, mean, I think a warrior priest is a great way to for someone to look at themselves, especially yourself. Um, Thank you. Appreciate that, Rick. One thing I was going to ask is that, you know, you've had a career being a journalist where you're investigating things and, and writing. You've been a, you're a writer as well. Um, you had a career as a priest. Um, do you think the thing that connects them somewhat is a, an aspect of of storytelling? Do you see yourself as a storyteller? Yeah, I think that's an extremely interesting point that you've just made me, uh, that you've just made for me. That when I look at my reasons for wanting to become a priest and most of all wanting to become a warrior priest in which I could help if if somebody is uh, being made very unhappy and very miserable by um, what we could think of as if they exist evil entities and to be able to do something for him by uh, using prayers of exorcism or using holy water. Um, and sometimes in some of the cases I've dealt with over many years, uh, leaving a Bible open at one of the stories in which our Lord Jesus conquered evil um, in the room in which there were dark influences. And that can sometimes be a great protection there are various other things that one can do. You can leave holy objects like a dish of holy water um, in a place that seems to have a bad influence within it. And when I look at what I try to do, I think we should all be, if we can, and as far as we can, warriors in the army of good against evil. Because I I, as I see the universe and human society, there are evil forces. And those of us who are prepared to fight against those evil forces, 
are very much needed. And uh, even though I'm 88, I'm still prepared to have a scrap when I'm needed. <laughs> and it's either mental or spiritual. It could be something intellectual as well as, you know, a, an actual physical rescue. Wow, yeah. I think that's a good point to make. Um, something else I wanted to ask you, as as a, an author of fiction, as somebody who is a great storyteller and is an imaginative person, if if someone were to ask you what the imagination is, what would your answer be? It's an extremely interesting question. Um, one of the things I've said in my autobiography is that there is our inner knowledge of selfhood, that as we are talking now, I am aware of my individuality, and I'm certainly aware of yours, that each of us has an intellectual self, which is very much, um, shall we say, the occupant of the brain, and which rather, I like to think of the image of a skillful rider with the brain as the horse and the mind of the self as a skillful and caring rider who loves the horse and uses the horse in a kind and gentle way and an understanding way. And this is how I think mind and brain go together. And when you say, what is the imagination? If we think of sight as a means where I can go out of my front gate and look all the way down the road a couple of hundred yards, and uh, or I can look down at the uh, stones in the path or the cars parked immediately in front of my house, and I can my eyes can take me a hundred yards or two hundred yards, and they can also take me six inches to examine a plant on my window ledge. Now. Just as we can do that with sight, so we can with hearing. We can hear um, a close whisper, or we can hear a brass band playing a hundred yards away, so that hearing can take us near and far. Now, what I'm thinking with the imagination and the self, the self can take itself in imagination either far away to what one might call the end of the road or the distant hilltop. And it can also look very closely. I can look down now at the clock and the calendar on my desk, and they're only a few inches from where I'm sitting. So that the mind can do the same thing. And the image of the self can use imagination to travel into a realm which may or may not exist. And this, of course, is fascinating. How much of what we think about is really there? How much do we create? And how much do we visit via our power of imagination? Could I just digress for a moment here and talk about something I've done in three of my novels, 
which will illustrate this point about the mind and the imagination. Absolutely, yeah. Go ahead. I've written several years ago now um, a trilogy called the Dirl Wothor Trilogy, and Dirl Wothor is spelt from the letters that make up other world. D-E-R-L-W-O-T-H-O-R. So that Dirl Wothor, where the activities take place in these stories, um, is the, um, the environment for a novel called The Black Lion, its companion volume, which is called The Golden Tiger, and a third one, which is just called Zotala the Priest. Now, The Black Lion, although it's just written as a straightforward adventure story, sword and sorcery, um, dwells on specifically the ambition that we have within us, the desire to succeed and to conquer, to win a fight. The Golden Tiger is a pleasure lover. And whether it's time with a beautiful woman or whether it's time with uh, a lovely meal or a delicious wine or to look at beautiful pictures, to go out into uh, a, a landscape of beautiful flowers and trees. So the black lion seeks power and authority. The golden tiger seeks pleasure. And the third novel Zotala the priest seeks goodness, kindness, gentleness, attempting to make the world a better place for all those who share it. Now, the point that I make about those three novels, that Dirl Wothor trilogy, is that the three characters, the man who seeks power and success, the man who seeks pleasure, and the man who seeks goodness are all the same person. In fact, I really wrote it about me. There's the, the martial artist side of me that wants to win. There's the pleasure-loving side of me that likes good food, good wine, and having a beautiful wife. And then there's Zotala the priest, who is that part of me which tries hard to do good, to be kind, to be unselfish, to help, to teach, and generally to be around if somebody has needs. So what I'm arguing from those three characters, that they live inside the mind of every human being. We all want power and authority. We all want pleasure and we all want to do good and to show kindness. Now, that little model of those three characters that I put into this trilogy, uh, for me, answers the question of what the mind is. It's the three of them working together. And there's the mind and the self. Does that uh, illustrate what we were looking at? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it does. Following on from that, do you think that when a person experiences something paranormal, 
be it a, a ghost or a, a cryptid or a UFO or anything really that it's meant to happen to that person? Is there something about it which which is only relevant to them and, and this, this phenomena is happening to them for a reason. A for a reason, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I could probably give you something of an answer to that. It is a very deep and important question. By looking back at my 88 years and looking at episodes in my life where two or three things have followed each other in a sort of necessary way that I have um, perhaps been uh, studying part of a university course and then something in the real world and looking at the philosophy and the sociology and the, um, the theology of the thing and have come across an instance in the real world. I'm looking at it in a textbook or I'm listening to it in a lecture. And then suddenly it's on the headlines. An episode hits the headlines of the nationals that covers the thing I was puzzling over in the university lecture. And then something appertaining to the big story that hit the nationals will come down in miniature in my locality, my area, that um, also echoes the three things. So if we were looking at something that was concerned with helping, uh, doing some good when someone was in desperate need and not turning the poor bloke away when he's desperate. You got say nowhere to sleep and uh, you go out of your way to accommodate him for the night. And then you see a, a big headline where in a national daily where in view of this awful problem in the Ukraine and the refugees and somebody with enormous generosity or a, a small neighboring country has taken in a thousand or two thousand, which is enormous compared to the size of their own population. And you think they put themselves out to help those refugees. And then it goes further through and you find that the same act of goodness and kindness has taken place let's say there's a, an animal shelter group who have saved the lives of three dogs whose elderly owner has just died and the dogs have been left to starve. Fortunately, they were seen. And so you've got a small group, a local group, national group, and a personal action whereby you can save somebody and help them. Does that make sense? Looking at it in those three ways? Yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. It, it's taking the here and the now as well as the there and the then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're almost out of time, Lionel, but I've got one last question, which I think a lot of my listeners would want me to ask is, what is your own most memorable 
paranormal experience? Well, I taught at Gamlingay Village College near Cambridge. And as, as you do with colleagues on the staff, I made a very great friendship with Bill Farrer, who was head of science. And it was a friendship that, I mean, this was 60 years ago. And Bill and I were friends for 40 or 50 years. And he phoned me one day, this is 10 or 12 years ago, to say that his doctor had told him that he had no more than six weeks to live and would I go over and see him. So as soon as I'd finished work on a Friday night, I went over to see Bill at this little village just outside Cambridge where he lived, where he'd been discharged from hospital and was more or less dying at home. And I was about to set off on another visit when his village priest, whose name was Father Ian, phoned me to say, because he knew how close Bill and I were, phoned me to say that he was very sorry to tell me that Bill had passed over and his last words to Father Ian had been to ask me to come over to conduct his funeral service with Father Ian in Father Ian's village church where Bill had lived. And I said to Ian, yes, of course I will. And the funeral was planned for the following Friday. I went over, I finished work on Thursday night and drove all the way over to Cambridge, which is a good 300 miles from Cardiff. And Father Ian knew I was going to get there late, so he'd got the doors open and the study doors, and he and I, if you can imagine, two priests putting a funeral service together. I'll read that piece, you read that piece, and so on. And I saw Bill. He looked as he had looked way back in the 60s when we'd been young teachers together. And no trace of the awful things that the illness had done to him. He, he was only about six stone when he died. And here he was back to his strong, healthy, energetic self as a young teacher. And he gave me a great big smile and said, very nice of you to come over. And uh, I appreciate what you're doing for me. And then he said, tell Ian, who could neither see nor hear him, tell Ian that Saint Juliana was absolutely right and everything is good. And then he vanished. And you could imagine how I felt. Am I going to tell Ian, whom I've only just met, that I have seen Bill and he gave me a message to give Ian? I took a long deep breath and I thought, yes, if it was the other way around, I know that Bill would have done it for me. And I said, Ian, I'm so sorry if this sounds strange, but I have just seen Bill. I said he looked radiantly happy and healthy, as I'd known him when he was a young man, when we were friends together for the first time. And he asked me to tell you that Juliana was absolutely right and everything was good. And Ian almost fell off his chair. He said, Father, there is no way you could have known that. He said, the last thing that I read to Bill as he passed away 
was from the writing of Saint Juliana, who had had a vision of the next world and had said to her delighted sisters in the convent, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And he said, that was the last thing that I said to Bill. And you've now driven 300 miles to tell me that he says Lady Juliana, Saint Juliana, was absolutely right. And that's the end of the story. Wow, that's an incredible experience. Uh, it, it was. It was. And I'm guessing your late friend did that for you and Father Ian as well to, to yes. help you with your grief. Grief yeah. over him. Lionel, this has been such a fun conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. It's a great pleasure to help you. If I can ever do anything for you in the future, you know you have only to ask. That's very kind. If people want to find out more about yourself and your writing and your long and varied career, is there somewhere they can find out more information? Yes, there's the website. Right, okay. I'll make sure to put that information in the show notes. It's been a really great pleasure. Thank you, Lionel. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Lionel. A true gentleman, I think you'll agree. I have to admit, I was a little starstruck during the interview. With such a varied career and the range of paranormal subjects he has investigated and written about, it was impossible to cover everything in the time we had, but hopefully I can schedule another interview with him in the future. In the meantime, his website is well worth visiting if you enjoyed this episode. Please also consider rating it wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps Some Other Sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other Sphere on Twitter and Mastodon and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.